Well, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Hey, welcome to Citadel Square if you're new. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And so go ahead and grab that and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Uh, last week, we, we had a moment. Were you convicted enough with last week with Mary and Martha? Yeesh, right? Uh, Mary and Martha is that story of um, Martha being distracted by a, by a variety of things. And if uh, you weren't distra- you know, convicted by distraction, then you get to talk about prayer today. So just you know, hang on and be encouraged. Um, you'll see as you turn there to Luke chapter 11 that Luke 11 begins another training moment in the, in the journey that Jesus is taking toward Jerusalem. We've seen Jesus pray um, probably four or five times up to this point in the story of the book of Luke. He's prayed at his transfiguration. Uh, he's prayed before his preaching ministry began. He's prayed um, before choosing the 12 disciples. He's prayed before the, uh, the uh, multiplying of the bread and fishes of the 5,000. He's prayed on the mountain uh, when his face was transfigured. He prayed and gave thanks to God, his heavenly father, uh, that he had hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. Uh, So all along the story of Jesus' ministry that he's been engaged in on the Lord's behalf, we've seen Jesus use prayer and exercise prayer as a kind of a reset for him. Anytime that ministry pressures happen with Jesus, anytime that there are significant revelations that are about to happen, they happen on the heels of Jesus praying. Uh, And you don't get, you know... Up to this point, we've only had Jesus mention prayer to the disciples, I think, just twice. He's told people to pray for those who've persecuted you, uh, for example. He's told them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. But we really haven't seen Jesus teach and train the disciples when it comes to prayer. Has that been a surprise to you? That we've taught them how to, you know, cast out demons and preach the kingdom and be reliant upon God for his provision. But it isn't until Luke chapter 11 as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, that we have this kind of teaching on prayer. And this teaching that you're going to see here in Luke chapter 11 happens almost accidentally. It almost is an afterthought. As Jesus continues to pray, he's going to be asked by a disciple. This is the single time, if if you're not aware, where somebody asks Jesus to teach them something. And it's funny that it happens in the context of prayer. Now, as we begin, the the goal for us here in prayer and in teaching on prayer is not to make you leave here today guilty. Okay? Can we just get that out of the way? Just set that aside. Because already when we talk about prayer, I don't think there's anybody in the room who goes, I've got it. I've figured it out. I know exactly how prayer works. Rather, I think a lot of us, no matter if you've grown, a lot of the times when you teach on prayer, you teach to people who, who feel a little bit embarrassed that they've never really known how to pray. I don't really know what I ought to be saying. Should my hands be up or down? Open or closed? Am I saying the right words or not? Am I just ranting indiscriminately? Is my prayer just emotional venting? Should I pray in a particular place? Should I take a particular posture? Should I pray out loud, in my head, eyes open, eyes closed? What are the rules to prayer? How do I know if I'm doing it correctly? Anybody ever struggle with prayer? You ever go through seasons of life where you feel prayerless? 
Just me. One person over here. Everybody else, two. That's it. Everybody else is not struggling with prayer this morning. That's great. You can teach somebody what I'm about to teach you this week. No, for all of us, I think we go through seasons and valleys in life where we, we pray and we feel like it's like throwing pencils to the ceiling, right? And they kind of stick and then fall. I had a guy who discipled me, a pastor many years ago, who said when I began my prayer journey, that's how I felt. I felt like I would take pencils and thunk them into the ceiling and go, that's about as far as my prayers go. And he said, the longer I prayed, the more consistently I prayed, the more I made the priorities of God's word, the uh, anchors of my prayer life, I began to feel like I was launching torpedoes. And that's in many ways what Jesus gives us here today. Luke chapter 11 is where prayer shows up. Now, if, you, if you've read any of the Gospels, you know that we also have instruction for prayer over in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of Jesus' talk, uh, his Sermon on the Mount, he talks in kind of the religious, cultural landscape in which he's teaching. And he observes hypocrites, he calls them. The Pharisees who like to stand in public places and make long, flowery, demonstrative prayers to let everybody know that they're praying. He talks about the Gentiles, and he says of the Gentiles, don't pray like them because they heap up empty phrases. They just rant and ramble thinking that they'll be heard because their prayers are long. So there, Jesus' instruction in Matthew 6 kind of is in response to what he's seeing in the religious culture. But here in Luke chapter 11, the prayers are slightly different. They're, they just have minor differences between Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. But in Luke chapter 11, we're in training mode, aren't we? We've been preparing the disciples for what they're about to face. So in that sense, prayer is Jesus' approach to basic training. We've taught you how to preach, to share the kingdom, to preach, to be dependent, to rest upon how God's leadership is going to welcome you or uh, God's leadership is going to have people restrain their welcome for you. But it's only here that we're introduced to prayer. So this is a training module for the church. How do we pray? And what you'll find as Jesus gives us his, his instruction on prayer is that all of Jesus' instruction lasts three verses. He doesn't take a weekend seminar to teach you how to pray. Now, in one part, that tells us that Jesus is a good communicator. Can Jesus communicate weighty things in three verses? Well, he does. But also, it's there so that we would say that prayer isn't hard to figure out. You can say this prayer in less than 19 seconds. I timed myself this week. Not even 20, 19 seconds. So Jesus takes prayer and what he does is he gives you a capsule. He gives you training. He gives you instruction so that you and I might be better equipped to know how we ought to pray. All right? So that's where we're going to look at this morning. You ready? Good. Let's pray. Father, we pause for just a minute and we pray. We acknowledge that we come before you as dependent and needy, in need of insight and wisdom, to pray the way we ought to pray. Father, I pray that as we look into your word, we would leave here today filled with courage to lay hold of the promises and the truths and the goodness and grace of God, our Heavenly Father, who is in heaven. 
that we would reorder our desires, our affections, our ambitions, that we would come to you because of our great need, that we would seek your face and seek forgiveness and seek to extend forgiveness to others. And Father, that you would protect us in our spiritual lives from the dangers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Father, shape our time here together. May the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 11. We there? Let's take a look here. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And I've mentioned this before in Luke's account of his gospel, that Luke is very particular with with details. But it's fascinating to me that in the place that Jesus gives some of the most explicit instruction on prayer, that Luke happens to just categorize Jesus as being in a certain place. Isn't that good news? Because if Jesus only prayed in this place and they said it was in Iowa, how many people you think would make pilgrimages to Iowa to go, I need to pray in the place that Jesus prayed? It's like people who get, who've already been baptized and then get baptized in the Jordan River because they think it's an extra special baptism because that's where Jesus got baptized. Let me tell you, you don't need to get baptized twice. Just do it one time. That's what Jesus says to do, right? So Jesus says in the beginning here that Jesus is praying in a certain place. And Jesus' prayer life, I have to imagine, was so compelling to the disciples. He had to have been doing something in his consistency or his fervency or his intentionality in the ways that he prayed. That we already know from the book of Luke that Jesus is very intentional about prayer. It's one of Luke's major emphasis all the way through his gospel. So Jesus is praying in a certain place, which lets us know that it doesn't matter where you pray. You can pray sitting down. You can pray in your car. If God hears Jonah from the whale, you can pray pretty much anywhere. Amen? You don't need a special place, special location. There's no special zip code. So Luke opens, letting us know that prayer is less about the place you are and more about what we're going to see in this prayer, the priorities of what we ought to be praying for. Now look at what he says. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us. Now, as I said, this is the single place in all the Gospels where somebody asks Jesus to teach them something. We don't know who the disciple is, but we know the disciple asks an important question. The disciple recognizes that there's some deficiency in his own prayer life when he observes Jesus praying. Do you ever feel like that? That you, I have a tendency in my own life, I, through even walking with God through three decades since I came to faith early in life, that often I'm not quite sure if I'm praying the way I ought to. You ever pray dumb things? Have you ever done that? You pray things, you look back later and you go, I shouldn't have prayed that. That wasn't a good idea. I'm glad God said no to that. So there's some awareness that we all have to have when we come to prayer that Jesus does it right. We need to learn from Jesus. We need insight from Jesus on how to order our inner spiritual world such that we're praying appropriately. And that's what this disciple asks. Now, he asks a question that relates to what they're currently seeing in their religious culture. We've been introduced to John the Baptist in in Luke's story early, right? And Luke came on the scene as this incredibly impressive, prophetic, Elijah-fulfilling person in the life of the nation. 
everybody streams out to see John. And John's so captivating as a religious leader because of his austerity, because of his wearing the camel's fur and eating bugs and honey, that he's taken on this bigger-than-life kind of role in the life of the nation. The scribes and the Pharisees don't know what to do in him. He's preaching fire and judgment from heaven. He's an incredibly intense individual, which is a total understatement. But John has gathered around him disciples. And even the religious leaders of this day that we've seen already in Luke are recognizing that John is different. He's different than any of the other religious leaders and teachers of the day. But also, Jesus is different. So John and Jesus and Luke are these incredibly compelling literary characters that the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers really don't know what to do with. Even back in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees approach Jesus and say, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but what do yours do? Jesus, your disciples eat and drink. Which shows us that in this time, there would, be, there would be communities that would rally around particular religious leaders. The spiritual leaders of the Pharisees would have their disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. Jesus has his own disciples. And the Pharisees are looking and saying, Jesus, you do things differently than John does. But this disciple comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray? Now, the reason that's important, the reason I spend time talking about the discipleship reality that's happening in the life of the culture and times of Jesus is to say that what Jesus is about to say is teaching that relates to a community. It's teaching that relates to his disciples particularly. Because when you go through what Jesus is about to teach us here, I need to tell you right at the beginning, there are no singular personal pronouns in this prayer. Everything in the prayer, 10 different times in the prayer, the prayer will talk about we or us. Do you know that? So you can use this prayer personally, but Jesus doesn't give this prayer to one singular disciple. He gives it to disciples. Because in Luke chapter 11, we are training this new group of individuals who will now follow after Jesus. And Jesus says, what I'm about to give you is a community practice. This is what marks the people who say they are following me. Here are their priorities. Here are their prayers. Here are their, the things that they're going to ask and speak to God for is going to form who we are as a community. You know this almost intuitively that when you step into a church who takes prayer seriously, you recognize that it welds your hearts together with other people. Amen? That you are joined with them, heart and soul, so that the truths of the New Testament church that talk about the body of Christ begins to be experienced and real through the context of prayer. I heard it described like this, that we aren't just a bunch of individual marbles in a jar with our own particular orbits and struggles that we have individually. No, we are people who are part of what Ephesians called, he says, in, uh, Paul says that we are members of one another. So that prayer is given to the community of God's people. We all feel individually uh, chastised and individually like we don't measure up in prayer. But if you want prayer to come alive in your life, don't do it alone. 
Jesus begins this instruction to his disciples, letting them know that this is for y'all. You with me? It's not a personal uh, method and technique for you alone. It's meant for us, the we's. Now, Lord, teach us to pray as, ta- as John taught his disciples. So here's the question. How should prayer look among Jesus' disciples? Right? That's, that's how the whole instruction is set up. Lord, will you teach us, because we're your disciples, will you teach us how prayer according to Jesus ought to look? If we're following you, if we're committing our lives to you and walking away, putting our hand to the plow, walking away from our families and putting all of our hope and trust in Jesus, who is the one who is bringing the kingdom near, God, how do you want our prayers? Jesus, how should our prayers look? So here's Jesus' answer. Look at verse 2. You with me so far? Here's verse 2. And he said to them, When you pray, now if you just want to go through your Bible and put y'all, that's allowed. Okay, because all of us read, primarily we all read our Bible individualistically, right? We come to the Bible and we go, God, I need my verse for my day because my spouse or my kids or my job or my boss or my whatever, my class, my whatever. God, will you give me the magic for me? And Jesus takes this prayer and he says to them, when you pray... So he presumes that his disciples are praying individually, of course, but his disciples primarily are praying together. And when I think about prayer in the context of church, when I think about prayer in the context of our culture, when you're a pastor, one of the things that you need to be sensitive to particularly when it comes to the spiritual winds of doctrine and change that flow through a city, a community. We all primarily live in our, in our own zip code. We live in our own kind of network of relationships. And one of the things that you recognize that exists in the city of Charleston is that we have corporate idolatry in our city. Let me explain. Charleston's different than other cities. Other cities may have different challenges, But people who are in the city of Charleston have temptations that come with where we live. You with me? There's a temptation being in one of the most high-ranking vacation destinations in America that comes with a certain set of temptations to the spiritual life of individuals. It's beautiful out there, right? Who doesn't want to be at the beach at 9 a.m.? You want to be here? I want to be on the beach. Which means you need to recognize, we need to recognize as a community that there are certain temptations that our church is going to face, particularly individually. We're going to face community temptations together about life in the city of Charleston. And one of those temptations that you recognize, it might be more American, it might be more Charleston, it might be more big city rather than rural, is the temptation toward individualism. One of the temptations that we all have as good, hard-working, Protestant work ethic Americans is that we have a tendency to evaluate our spiritual life personally. We very rarely connect our spiritual health to the body of believers that we are involved in and sacrificially giving and committed to. We have a tendency, I have a tendency, as long as I've been in ministry, I still feel the temptation to evaluate how I'm doing personally rather than how we're doing corporately. 
And when God calls you into ministry to be a shepherd, your heart has to care more, not just about your own personal spiritual well-being. Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in these things. For by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. But when you get called by Christ into the position of spiritual leadership, one of your responsibilities is to look out for the y'all. Which means we as elders are called to look out for false teaching. We're called to look out for the tendencies that might exist in our congregation, in our city, in our spiritual community that would draw you away from spiritual devotion to Jesus Christ. Elders, amen? Amen. That's what we're called to do. So when Jesus begins his instruction to his disciples, he presumes that we pray. And when you recognize that you have a tendency, and when I recognize that I have a tendency toward defining my own spiritual well-being personally, what that will do is create relational concussions in the community. Because it creates an a priori, which means an assumed evaluation in my life that as long as I'm good, me and Jesus are good. But it will evacuate and eviscerate any love, care, concern, patience, and tenderness toward other people. So when Jesus begins the instruction on prayer, he says, when you pray... When we pray, when Citadel Square prays, the reason we have, let me just keep ranting on this, okay? Are you okay with the rant on this? One of the problems that we have as Americans in divining our spiritual life individually is we get really weirded out about corporate responsibility. But what you find in virtually every New Testament letter to the churches is that individual churches have individual corporate responsibility for what happens in their body. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, there's a man who has his father's wife. You're proud. That's a problem. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he calls out ladies by name. And he says, I appeal to Judea and Syntyche to agree. When Paul tells Timothy in Ephesus, he says, I've handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. When John writes to his community in 3 John, he says, Diotrephes, who likes to be first, doesn't listen to what we say. All of the New Testament letters presume that there is work to be done in the community and that the church, corporate, is responsible for its spiritual health. So when you join Citadel Square or you join any other church, you are joining to take seriously the call to be a part of a community that is following Jesus. Heart, soul, mind, strength. You with me? So that's where Jesus starts. It's a we, and we need to talk to God. We need to pray. Now, Here's what you need to say. Now, Jesus doesn't give you just words to say. He doesn't give you rosary on your wrist so that you can pray the Hail Mary. That's not what he does here. What Jesus does in giving you words is give you priorities. He gives you the things that are, to Jesus, the highest level of priorities that ought to characterize your prayers. They ought to shape the words that come out of your mouth. And Jesus is terse. He's tight which means he gives you the essentials that need to mark prayer in the community of faith. So here's what he says. Father, number one. I'm just going to take it piece by piece. You okay with that? Father. Now there's, 
Old Testament evidence to prove that the nation of Israel viewed God as their father corporately. That's a part of how the Old Testament believers viewed God. But when Jesus says this, Jesus says it in the context of Luke chapter 11, which is in the context of all of Luke's gospel, right? Jesus has used the most concentrated language about his heavenly father just one chapter earlier. So keep your finger in Luke 11 and just go back into Luke 10 with me for a second. Look at Luke 10, 21. Luke 10, 21. He's, he's just said this. We just looked at this a couple weeks ago. Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, one of the things we said in that passage is that Jesus' revelation is a revelation of relationship. So when your prayer life, when our prayer life is being expressed, one of the great confidences we have in praying together is that we all come to God as our Heavenly Father. Now, who cares? Why does that matter? Well, it matters, one, from the sake of intimacy. It means that you have, John says this, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You, ha Christians, you have the audacity, the boldness, the right to call God your heavenly father. Now that means for every Christian in the room. It doesn't mean we have Christians who are closer to God and further to God. None of, every one of my kids can call me dad. You know that? Every single kid that I have has the right to call me dad. Other kids don't have the right to call me dad, but my kids have the right to call me dad. And they will ask mom and dad questions, often all at the same time, around the dinner table, in loud voices, when at least one of them is singing and or whistling. And I say that to say that they have the boldness to believe that they can ask God, ask mom and dad God. They can ask mom and dad anything. Right? They ask them anything. Whatever is off the top of their head, boom, it comes out and they talk to mom and dad about it. So one, you have the boldness and you have the right, but you also have the intimacy that is granted to you because of what Jesus has done for you. That the fatherhood of God is not some arbitrary title that we give to God, but the, the, the fact that we can call God our heavenly father means that we have access to a relationship that characterizes the deepest part of the desires that we have to be known and loved and accepted. When you say father, you are a part of a spiritual family where you have intimacy and access and the right to come to God. Isn't that good news? God's not up there with his fingers in his ears to us kids. He says, disciples, you have the right to call God your father. So there's intimacy, there's access, there's relationship as prayer starts. But not only that, there's more than that. Look at what Jesus says. Father, hallowed be your name. In a sense, it means God let your name 
be regarded as holy. Now, anytime that the Bible uses this phrase of your name, it means the biblical revelation. It means who God has shown himself to be to us. So just as we have the right, the intimacy, the access, the relationship to be able to come to God, our Heavenly Father, he does not cease to be God. Amen? He is still exactly who he is. We have new access, new right, new adoption as sons, new relationship with him, but also he is still God. And the prayer, hallowed be your name, is essentially a prayer that we might reorder our inner lives that our attention and affection might be most centered on what God has said about himself. Do you ever get off when you're praying and pray things about yourself and others and totally forget who God is? I mean, that happens to me all the time. I'm like, oh God, there's this problem. There's this person, there's this thing, there's this struggle, there's, it's on fire. And I, you know, I went to, we were at Sunday Night Prayer last week, and I didn't lead it. And man, it was, Steve Lindemeyer led it. He's the godliest elder we have. And he, uh, he led it. And man, it was so good for my heart. Because Steve led us through this uh, it, kind of a mnemonic, a way to think about praying, where he said, we're going to do adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we started the beginning part of our praying together with just adoring God for who he is. And you would be, I was so surprised, I shouldn't be surprised, I'm a pastor, I know that. I was so surprised at the inner peace that came at the very beginning of our praying. Do you know that? Because I needed that. I needed a... God, you're big and I'm small. God, you're over everywhere and everything and every place. You're totally sovereign, totally omnipotent, totally omniscient. There's nothing I, I inform you of. And when Jesus says, Father, we have intimacy and access, when he says, hallowed be your name, it's a prayer of confession that you might be the most important thing to me. That what you have said is the most important thing. What you have revealed is the most important thing. And as such, it, it creates a, pre, a leaning in. Uh, God, I'm ready to defer to you. I'm ready to hear from you. I'm ready. Here's what, how Ecclesiastes puts it. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. This is Ecclesiastes 5. I think this is appropriate when we think about hallowing his name. Ecclesiastes 5 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. You ever, just, you ever know you're talking too much? You ever have that conversation with yourself and somebody else and you go, I haven't taken a breath. I should probably use some punctuation. And for us, when, when it comes to prayer, one of the, the struggles we have is the reverence struggle. The attention and the focus struggle. That we reverence all sorts of things that are huge to us. We reverence this conversation that needs to happen. We, we reverence this tension that needs to get resolved. We reverence this issue in my life that I want God to fix. This problem that needs to get resolved. And Jesus says, begin your, your prayer like this. You have access and intimacy with your heavenly father and hallow his name. Close your mouth. Acknowledge that what he says is the most important thing that anybody can say. 
It's in a sense to pray, God, will you be the biggest thing in my world? Will you be the sun in my orbit? Would everything that I say flow out of a reverence and a worship for who you are? So, intimacy, access, reverence. Watch this. Your kingdom come. Now, if you have ordered in the first part of this prayer, your relationship with God, and you've ordered your reverence, this is only natural, isn't it? It's only natural to lay our agendas out and before God and have open hands, right? It's, it's to say to God, God, whatever your agenda is, I want that. Whatever desires that I have, may they be second to yours. Because at least what we've seen in the book of Luke is that Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God near. And this isn't just some future arbitrary one day when God is Lord over all the earth and his glory is seen and experienced by everyone. Do you know you can pray this prayer? We can pray this prayer together as a church today. Because we can ask that the affections of our hearts would be ordered according to the coming kingdom. We can take our agenda and our plans and open our hands to them and say, God, whatever you want to do in this situation, we submit to it. Because God, what's most important to us is your will, your desire, your coming kingdom, where your rule and your reign is most seen among your people. Can you imagine what it would look like? This, we got 400 people-ish in the room. Can you imagine if that was our singular prayer this week? Can you imagine how eager God would be to allow, how eager God would be to answer that prayer? And you know what the hard part is of that prayer for me? Is that I've got a lot of good plans. I've got a lot of great agendas. They're wonderful ideas. Why do you think this passage comes right after Mary and Martha? Was Martha praying, your kingdom come? Was I, do I pray? You're, am I really willing to die to my ambitions and dreams and thoughts and feelings and agendas that I have? This is probably, I think, perhaps the most disruptive prayer because it recognizes among the people of God that sometimes we have different kingdom agendas, don't we? We have different plans, desires, ambitions, agendas that control our prayer life, that we really want God to do this thing, but we don't have a tendency to pray, God, your kingdom come. We can pray my kingdom come real easy. God, let my world be revolve around my ambitions and my desires and how I want things to look. But God, if I'm really willing to give up the control and allow you to be king, would your kingdom come? We know that God leads us for our good, right? Why is this prayer so hard to pray? Because we don't trust that God leads us for our good, right? You with me? That's too convicting. I, I struggle with this. I think we all struggle with this. So you see how Jesus begins his instruction on prayer in a very Godward fashion, right? The entire beginning of Jesus' prayer is totally focused on God. What should the disciples' prayer life look like? It should be Godward in its emphasis, right? It should begin with God. God, you're our Heavenly Father. We have intimacy with you. We have right standing with you. We can come to you as a community of brothers and sisters confident in our right standing before you because of Jesus. 
Number two, God, we close our mouth and open our ears and we hallow the words that you say. We hallow and reverence the revelation of who you are to us. Number three, we desire that our agendas would die, that your kingdom would come, that you would do things among us to make visible your rule and your reign, both personally and corporately in our body. Now, only now, when Jesus orders our prayers appropriately theologically, does he move to us down here. Because prayer is not merely so that you would get a little bit of zen in the middle of your life and heart. If you want to see God move, then you need to pray according to what God says here. Because the connection between our experience of God and the truth of God happens through prayer. Do you know that? Because Jesus makes this very plain right here. Once I'm done ordering all of my theology, now we're going to talk about us. Are you ready to talk about us? Let's get to it. Look at verse 3. It shifts this emphasis of Godward. Now it comes to us. Verse 3. Give us each day. Now the prayer give us... This is kind of pretty easy to understand. Means that we come to God as insufficient, right? We come to God as needy. We come to God with hands open. You know the people who don't pray? The people who don't pray believe that they are sufficient for the day's troubles. That they don't have any needs. There's no problem, no situation, no relationship where I need God's involvement whatsoever because I have every single thing that I need to be able to handle this situation. Now, if you've walked with God for longer than 20 minutes, you will recognize that that's not always true of us, is it? Church, amen? Older Christians are amen and loud right now. You know why? Because they've experienced over and over and over and over their profound insufficiency in light of God's provision for them. Amen? over and over and over and over again. So when Jesus allows us to have intimacy and access with our Heavenly Father, he says we also have the right to ask. We have the right to ask when we are insufficient. We have the right to ask when we are in need. We have the right to ask and to come to him as someone who will satisfy not some distant need somewhere in the future, six months from now, from a situation that I'm scared of that might happen. He says, you come to God and you pray for what? Give us this day our daily bread. One of the things that I, I think has always surprised me about answered prayer is how God waits till the last minute. Don't you hate that? I want answers to prayer that I'm praying like three weeks in advance. And God has this way of making it where it's like 15 minutes before he gives an answer. And one of the things that you recognize the more that you walk with God is just what this kind of praying does to your spiritual life. This makes your spiritual life fresh. It makes it urgent. You ever read uh, the book of Nehemiah? It says of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is sad in the presence of the king. And he's sad because the, the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. And there's one little bitty phrase where the king, you can't, you're not allowed to be sad in the king's presence. Not allowed. The king likes happy people around him. And here's Nehemiah wiping tears, standing in the king's presence as the cupbearer to the king. And there's a little phrase in Nehemiah says, that says, I prayed to the Lord and I said to the king. We don't even know what Nehemiah prayed. But it was in that fraction that it takes a comma 
before he speaks, that Nehemiah's prayer shoots up to God for God to give grace. And one of the things that I, I think I've recognized the longer I've walked with God is that God loves to answer prayers really, really close to the deadline for a particular reason. God loves doing that. Let me illustrate this. Keep your finger there. Look at Deuteronomy 8. Go back to Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, Moses says, here's how God did it for 40 years. Do you want to see how God leads? Here's how God leads you. He did it that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. It was a one-time personal experience. It was something he did for you for 40 years every single day to teach you something about himself. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When did God provide manna? Every single day. And I have to think that God did that because God wanted to let his people know how near he was. To let them know that no, every day, every hunger pang that you have when breakfast hits, I'm going to be there for you and you're going to learn who I am by your proximity to my willingness to meet your needs. Why are we uncomfortable? See, we're uncomfortable with that because we think we don't have the experience that a lot of the Old Testament and New Testament saints did because we're not an agricultural society. But do you need God's grace and provision every single day? You do. We need that daily confirmation that God is here, God loves me, God's providing for me, and that I can come to him as my heavenly father because he loves to meet my needs. So Jesus says, pray this, give us each day our daily bread. Verse 4, we need provision, but you know what else we need in verse 4? We need pardon. Verse 4 says this, and forgive us our sins. What's that tell you? That tells you that God's people, who are disciples of Jesus Christ, are not perfect people. Right? There's nobody who has their entire inner world ordered correctly who comes to pray. There's no one who comes to prayer without significant blind spots in their life that they don't see and they need God's grace for. There's nobody who comes who has all pure thoughts when they pray. So Jesus recognizes that if you're going to engage in prayer, if we're going to engage in prayer as a community, there are going to be some things that we need to repent for and get right. And maybe that doesn't characterize your prayer life right now. Maybe you can't think of something, but when, as anybody, are you, if you're reading through the Bible in the year, are you in Leviticus right about now? And you're struggling, it's like, I don't think I can make it. It's March, I'm going to, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. Leviticus chapter 4, that's just, that has nothing to do with the sermon. Leviticus chapter 4 has this category of people who pray who don't know that they're sinning. And there's a category in Leviticus 4 for sacrifices that people have to give when they discover or it's revealed to them that they're sinning. 
Which is such great news because it lets us know that you're going to have sins that you don't know you're committing that are going to be revealed to you that you need to repent for and that God has a sacrifice for. Which means when we come to prayer, do we know all of our sin? Say no. No. But when we confess our sin, God's grace is there to meet our needs. God welcomes his kids who are sinners coming into his presence, confessing their sin and seeking forgiveness. And this is the one part of the prayer which comes with a spring-loaded response. See, your kingdom come feels like sometimes we've got to have our fingers pried off of our agenda, right? But this is not that kind of prayer at this point. God, forgive us our sins for, what, look what it says, we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Now, it doesn't mean we earn forgiveness by being forgiven, by forgiving others. It does mean that the people who are disciples of Jesus Christ don't hold grudges. The people who are disciples of Jesus Christ are willing and ready and desiring to extend the same forgiveness that Jesus has so freely given to them to others. Amen? So when Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant, he talks about the servant who was forgiven 10,000 talents. And over a couple hundred bucks, he refuses to, for, to forgive his fellow servant. And the king says to him, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant the way I had mercy on you? What's the answer? Of course. So even in the midst of praying, when imperfect disciples come to Jesus and imperfect disciples cry out to their heavenly father saying, God, please forgive us because we recognize the right standing we have with you is only because of grace. It's only because your blood. It's only because we've come because Jesus has opened the way for us. And therefore, we're ready to extend that forgiveness to others. We're ready to love and to, to be people of mercy. Now for the final, lead us not into temptation. <clears throat> if the idea is that Jesus is continuing the struggle with sin that both lives in our heart, that characterizes our relationships with one another, then he closes recognizing that it's God's desire and it's subsequently our desire that God give us great wisdom to lead us away from the adversaries of our soul. One of the ways that you can be certain that God is leading you according to his word is that he's steering your life away from the temptations that make war against your soul. Do you know that? It's your desire. This is a very active and aware part of prayer. It recognizes that we all have lusts and sins and proclivities to things that are dangerous to us, right? So Jesus gives us this and says, close your prayer, finish your prayer, being cognizant of the fact that there are temptations out there. There are pressures out there. You have experienced pressures this week to, to fall, to say the things that you really want to say, but you can't because you know it doesn't honor Christ. You've had temptations to think and to dwell on things that you know are not good for your spiritual life and you know they don't honor God and you need his leadership to be able to lead you out of those paths and those crevices in your heart where you are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So you see that Jesus' instructions to prayer really lead and form a community. You see that? They're so essential to being holistic disciples of Jesus together. 
Now, if you don't call Citadel Square your home, this is a little bit of just family business that I think we need to wrestle with as a church. Ann, where are you? How long have you been praying for Citadel Square? 33 years. Brenda, how long have you been praying for Citadel Square? 27 years. Almost, Ann. Ann, you win. <laughs> Sep, Charlie, how long have you been praying for Citadel Square? 14 years. Let me tell you how we, we as elders try to prioritize prayer in the life of the community, okay? Because as far as I can tell, these instructions are given to us as Citadel Square, right? They're given to a community, to people, to disciples who say, no, I follow Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you learn early in ministry is that prayer meetings are the least attended thing that you do. And I don't say that to shame anybody. I, I, like my heart on this for our church is a heart of pastoral concern is that I worry about the heart of our church when it comes to prayer. I don't know where we are in that. And I don't want to make reckless assumptions about where we are in that. But I want to tell you that the heart of the elders is to prioritize our relationship with God through prayer. A couple ways that we do that. Number one, is that our diligent and weekly practice is to pray for a portion of our membership list consistently. If we email you and ask for your prayers, we pray for you by name every single week in our elder meeting because we believe that's in accord with Acts chapter 6 where the elders are called to not neglect the priority of the word of God and prayer. So we take that seriously and every, we keep working our way through the membership list. Now we, got more, we keep adding members, which takes us a little bit longer. But... That's our priority to you. So even if you don't respond and you're a member of Citadel Square, I want you to know that you're prayed for. That we seek God for your good, your welfare, your protection according to things like this. Number two, we have ways in which you can respond to God's word every single week in our service. In the form of our prayer team that stands in these back two doors and are in the balcony. That we don't just want our time together on Sunday to be growing intellectually and loving God with our mind. We want to be a place where you are able to, to discern what God is doing in your heart in, the, in this moment and to allow the people of God to pray with you and come shoulder to shoulder with you to help you take your next step with Jesus, that you might be more faithful as a result of somebody on our prayer team praying with you, as a result of one of our pastors praying with you. Number three, we have a prayer team. This prayer team is relatively unseen in the life of our church. We see them as elders. They're very intentional to pray for us as staff, to pray for me personally, and they pray before each one of our services every single week. They pray for you, they pray for me, they pray for the preaching, they pray for the worship, they pray for our families, they pray for our kids, they pray for my family personally. They pray that people would know and understand Christ as a result of what our gathering does here. They're consistent in that. They're diligent and they're devoted to that. They believe it's their calling in the life of the church to do that. Number four, we intentionally pray for missions partners. You've heard that be a significant part of our service every single week where we ask God to do something beyond what we could ask or imagine in local missions partners, global mission partners, church partners we have in various parts around the globe. 
But we have a once a month prayer meeting as well. And I want to challenge you and exhort you that that ought to be a priority to us as a church. That ought to be the place. And let me tell you, if you are unaware of what God is doing in the life of Citadel Square, you will hear what God is doing in the life of Citadel Square at those prayer meetings. Just imagine what you would learn as a result. I know I was talking to my wife about this, just prayer in the life of our church and, and having this concern and not knowing where we are as a body and how do we grow in this and what does God want from us in this. And one of the recognitions and the observations my wife made is that she has been in three or four times where she's been praying with other people and she's seen almost immediate answers to prayer when she was praying with others. And one of the things that's a danger for us as we wrestle with prayer individually and corporately is a lot of times we shrink our world to this, the, the tensions and concerns we have individually. And do you have prayers that aren't answered yet? You have prayers that you haven't seen God do anything yet? Do you want to know how to be encouraged that God can do stuff in your life? You need to pray with other people. Because my wife this week had like boom, 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 three quick answers to prayer. And she goes, I still have stuff I'm praying here that hasn't been resolved. But look at how faithful God is to answer the prayers in the life of the people that I'm praying with. And that's the opportunity we have as a church body when we pray together. And we've done this consistently. We did it when we talked about leaving the SBC. We prayed for a worship leader. God gave us a worship leader. He's standing right over there. Where is he? He's over there, right? We saw God answer that prayer. We are praying about how to restore the building. And right now, God's allowing us to restore the building one little bitty bite of the elephant at a time. And we feel good about that. Dean, right? We feel good about it. We don't need to raise money, have a thermometer, go through the whole borrow millions of dollars. We're trusting God to provide day by day, week by week. Maybe it's almost like daily bread. Can you believe that? <laughs> how are we coming to those conclusions? We're praying. How do we see God at work in the life of our church? We pray. So I, I don't want to guilt you into coming to the prayer meeting. That's not my heart. I want us to experience God together. And I believe that's what God has for us when we pray. Amen? Amen. Father, we pause and confess the, that we need to be taught when it comes to prayer. I believe that you have more for us. We want to see more of you. Oh God, would you open our eyes to see what you are doing in this body and community. Father, would we repent for the sins that we, not, we might not be aware of even this morning. Would you shape us and challenge us and encourage us. Would, be, would, be, would we be reminded of the fatherhood of God that we have the right and the access and intimacy to come to you. Father, would we confess that you are the most important thing to us, and that is a war in our hearts often. But Father, we want that to be true. We want your kingdom to come. We want us to shrink and you to get great in the life of your people here. So Father, for the needs in the room, we, we lay them before you. We ask for you to be our provider. We ask for forgiveness. We are eager to forgive one another. And Father, that you would lead us not into temptation, that you lead us to freedom and to peace and to joy and to life as those who long for you and long to experience you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.